Success is something that we all chase. And your definition of success might be different than someone else's, but in our culture, in this country, however we define success, it's, it's fairly similar. There may be different nuances, a couple of different details, but overall, we have a crystal clear idea of what success is, and that is what we are either pursuing or regretting that somehow we feel we can't pursue it. And I think one of the greatest tragedies, the tragedy that, that many of us will spend our lives climbing the ladder of success only to discover at the end that it was leaning against the wrong wall. I think there are a lot of people that get exactly what they wanted to discover, not at all, what they wanted. And I've come to this age in my life, I understand the pursuit of success. I am very wired and and driven. Um, How many of you are familiar with the Enneagram? How many of you, anybody familiar with Enneagram? I'm not speaking in tongues, it's actually a thing. Uh, If you've studied Enneagram, Enneagram, Number eight, like um, basically nobody likes me because I'm the guy that will bust through a wall even if you tell me I shouldn't uh, to discover it was the wrong wall to bust through. I mean, I I just, I'm very ambitious, very driven, very result-oriented, so I understand the pursuit of success. I get it. But in the last few months, as I've been kind of really trying to to lean into my relationship with God, what the future is going to look like, I'm one of those people that, that even though I'm 40, none your business, I, I'm not looking at the rest of my life as slowing down. There is no coasting or cruise control for me. In fact, I sense a greater urgency for the church to be the church, for me to be the person God called me to be, and for us to make a difference in community. That's, that's only going up in my life. And so there's been a little bit of a transition, and part of that transition is this. I no longer pursue success. I am now chasing significance. Because when you pursue and chase significance, true success comes along for the ride. And significance at its core cannot be selfish because you have no interest in building my kingdom and I have no interest in building your kingdom. So to be truly significant, there must be something in my life that brings benefit to you. And for you to be truly significant, there's something in your life that brings benefit to me and to others. So what if we, we get what we're chasing only to, to discover it's not what we would have chosen had we known? Did you know a majority of people that are married, if you ask them the question, would you marry the same person again, a majority of people say no. You got what you wanted to discover it's not what you wanted. You, you had to have that house and what at one time looked so beautiful, and, and you even told God, whether you believe in God or not, it's fascinating to me that even people who don't believe in God still pray. I mean, still toss one up. If you don't think so, go on a flight sometime where the plane is in trouble. Even atheists pray. But, but all those things we told God, man, if you just give me that, if you just bless me like that, and now what you thought would be a blessing has become a curse. The job you had to have, the area that you had to live in, 
Over and over and over again, I hear people all the time talking about how they just want to get out of a certain area, want to move away from a certain area. I'm thinking of a friend a few years ago that just had to get out of Orlando, just couldn't stand it. I just got to go. You know what I've discovered? Wherever you move, your problems move with you. Often it's not about what's around you, it's about what's inside you. Because sometimes we fail to realize that God has placed us strategically in a certain spot around certain people, strategically placed in relationships for a very specific time and reason designed and authored by God. And if we would get our eyes on God and what he's doing and what he desires to do, we would feel much more fulfilled in those moments. Rarely is it the place, it's usually the person. And often... In our chasing success, we miss the purposes of God. Because if you ever thought about this, we've defined success based on the amount of money we make, how we look, who we're connected with, what part of town we live in. Everything about success is what makes me look good. And you are far too small in the scope of eternity. And I am far too small in the scope of eternity to chase the success and try to elevate someone that's here for a moment and then gone. So what if? We're in this series called What If? And this morning it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to give you the what if at the end of the message because I want to walk through what is to me one of the most powerful stories in all of Scripture. I'm going to the book of Esther, tucked away in the Old Testament. Now what is unique about this book called Esther, it's about Esther who became a queen in the Persian Empire. What's unique about this particular book is not one time in all the chapters of this book do you find a reference to God by name. God seems somewhat silent, yet his presence is extremely obvious. Notice what happens. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. See, sometimes people who often to get rid of your problem are simply trying to disguise that they are in fact the problem. What happened in this passage was that Haman was elevated by the king, King Xerxes, over the Persian Empire. Haman is elevated, and in that process, he says everyone needs to bow so that they know that Haman is now number two. Haman is large and in charge. Haman is the guy that I want everyone to notice, and so everybody has to bow. And as Haman is walking and going through the city, he comes across Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses to bow because Mordecai... He's an Israelite. He's Jewish. And bowing is an act of worship. And in Mordecai's mind, he has to be thinking, I, I can salute you. I can respect you. But I will not worship you. There's only one God that I bow to. So Haman finds out about it, and he becomes extremely angry, and he goes to the king, and he says, hey, there are some people that are just a problem. How they think, what they believe, who they are, it's just a problem. And so we need to get rid of those people. We, we need to annihilate them, and I'll even pay you 10,000 talents of silver, and I'll take care of the problem for I'll pay you, and I'll take care of the problem, and I'll kill Mordecai, and I'll kill all the Jewish people. We're just going to get rid of them. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamanath, the Agagite, 
the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Now that word Agagite is not there accidentally. One of the things you'll discover, and one of the things I, I continually discover about Scripture is that God says what he means and means what he says, and there is not one single word that accidentally found its place into the Word of God. So what does Agagite mean? Well, back in the day, we read the story in 1 Samuel chapter 14, chapter 15. There was a group of people, the Amalekites, that were descendants of Agagite. And King Saul was in charge, and God told Saul to wipe them out, to annihilate them. It was crystal clear what was supposed to take place. And yet Saul decided when he got there, no, we're not going to wipe them out. We'll, we'll wipe part of them out, but some of it we're going to keep for ourselves. Some of the people we're going to let live. And Saul altered the plan of God. And every single time you or I alter the plan of God, it always comes back bigger, badder, and bites us in a worse way. Haman, son of Hamathadah, the Agagite. Now we're dealing with a problem that should never have been allowed to exist. Now we're dealing with the fruit of a root of a problem that wasn't dealt with earlier. When God brings things to your attention, when God speaks clearly in Scripture, when God brings things to my attention, it's so that we can deal with it. If you're a leader, if you lead anything, if you lead your home, if you lead a business, if you lead a classroom, if you're a coach, if you lead anything, things are brought to the attention of the leader by God so they can be dealt with, not ignored. If something has been brought to your attention, it's so that you can address it. It's so that you can deal with it, not so that you can ignore it. And nor do we have any right to change the plan and the purpose of God. But isn't it true that like King Saul, we often look at scenarios in life and think, I know, I know what God said, but I, I'm here, I'm on the ground, I'm seeing it live and up close. And, and, and I know what God said, but I really think it'd be better if we, we do that all the time. Some of you this morning were reading in Esther, but you're here this morning, and part of what you're facing in life and part of your struggle, maybe even perhaps part of the reason you came to church this morning, is you're dealing with the fruit of a root of a problem that wasn't dealt with earlier. Mordecai finds out. The king has said, fine. Haman, you can wipe out Mordecai, the Jews, you, you can destroy them all. And they decide to throw lots, cast lots. In Scripture, it's called a purr. It literally means rolling dice, casting lots, to determine between the declaration that the Jews have to all be executed, how long will it be before we actually do it? And the dice are rolling. It comes up with 12 months. It's interesting that no matter who may be rolling the dice in your life or mine, God is the one that is sovereign and in charge. Because when the dice are rolled, 12 months, it's going to be 12 months, the maximum amount of months in a year, 12 months before we wipe out the Jewish race. So you can imagine the scene, families sitting at home watching the news. And for some of you, when I say news, you instantly think CNN. For others, you think, oh my gosh, no, Fox News. For others, you think, well, two of you think MSNBC. And then you, you have, when you think news, is anybody written off? When you think news... You have something in mind, and, and these Jewish families, on the evening news, it rolls out, hey, all the Jews are going to be executed in 12 months. Can you imagine the fear, the terror as this edict gets out? When Mordecai, chapter 4, verse 1, learned 
of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is entirely a hopeless situation. Have you ever been in a circumstance where it didn't matter what direction you looked in, it didn't matter how you tried to analyze, it didn't matter what reason you brought to it, or or who you talked to about the problem you're facing, there's no good option. It looks bad no matter where you glance. I think it's important for us to remember as followers of Christ, if you're a Christ follower here this morning, never count God out no matter how bad things look. Never discount the power, the presence, and the possibilities of what God can do no matter what it looks like here. So often we see what it looks like here and we forget that God is bigger than anything here. Now part of the reason we forget that is there have been times in our lives where even God disappointed us. Part of the reason we question and we wrestle with God being big enough to handle it is there were times that his actions were were, were too small or too late or non-existent. Based on what we thought should have been done. Esther hears that Mordecai, who's technically an uncle, but Esther was orphaned when she was young, and so Mordecai adopts her. He's functioned as a father figure to her. She's now queen. She was made queen simply because primarily from an earthly perspective of her beauty. The Bible tells us that Esther was uh, smoking hot. That's not what it says in the Hebrew, but basically that's what we get. Because King Xerxes could have had anyone, and he picks her. And who do you think gave her her looks in the first place? So could it be that before Esther was even born, God knew what would unfold in history and knew what would appeal to King Xerxes because it's what appeals to most people of the male species and said, okay, I'm going to give you these looks because it's going to set the stage for how I'm going to use you in a particular way. Isn't it interesting that before we're even born, God knows the exact gifts and the exact personality and the exact way to wire us so that we can be strategically used in a specific moment, in a specific place, at a specific time. Mordecai told him, the messenger that Esther sends, to find out why are you acting like this. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. He told him to instruct her to go go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, what's interesting, early on, Mordecai had said to Esther, don't tell him you're Jewish. This is a highly anti-Semitic area. You don't need to let him know that. Now that trouble's coming, hey, it's time for you to let him know who you are. It's time for you to let him know who your people are. You need to go into the king. To which Esther replies, "Um, I'm not going to do that. See, in that day, in that culture... If you went into the king without an invitation, it was an immediate death sentence unless 
he extended his golden scepter towards you. Then he would allow your presence. But more often than not, for you to go into the king without invitation was so audacious, so inappropriate, something you just did not do. So Esther is saying, hey, I know what you're asking me, and you are my people. I, I used to be a part of you, but I'm, I'm a little bit different now. I've got a little bit different income, and I live in a little bit different place, and I, I've got mine. Maybe you should work on getting yours because I've, I've kind of arrived, and what you're asking me to do would cost me not just my job but my life. So I have no plans to do that. Esther failed to remember in that moment what many of us often fail to remember, and that is biblical blessing is only blessing when it can flow through you and not just to you. Esther had been elevated to a particular place by the hand of God, designed before her birth, so that one day she would be in this exact role for this exact moment in time to fulfill her ultimate purpose of significance. Not about success, it's about significance. And in that moment, God has set the stage up perfectly for Esther to be able to speak to her husband in that moment. But all she's looking at is how far she's come and what she's gotten. And she's forgotten that God's the one that gave it to her in the first place. Isn't it easy for us to forget that every good thing comes from God? Isn't it easy for us to fail to remember that when God blesses me, it's not so that I look good to people, it's so that He looks good to people. Isn't it important that we understand, especially as followers of Jesus, that yes, we are to enjoy the blessings of God, but Part of the reason, in fact, a primary reason that God blesses us is not just to give a blessing to us, but to bless others through us. But it only happens when we understand a kingdom perspective. What do you mean by kingdom? The kingdom of God. God's kingdom is always bigger than my my kingdom or our kingdom. What are you spending your life building, your kingdom or God's kingdom? What do you spend your life promoting, your kingdom or God's kingdom? What do you think about almost every waking moment, your kingdom or God's kingdom? One of those kingdoms will not last forever. One of those kingdoms is very temporary and, in fact, very fragile. One of those kingdoms you have absolutely no control of and you can't do anything in actuality to sustain. So if there's little or no concern for his kingdom, you've just cut off your blessings. I remember years ago in Avalon, it was one of the events downtown where they invite 125,000 people to come into a little downtown area of Avalon and hang out, and they're going to bring about uh, 15 food trucks to feed 125,000 people, and so everybody's standing in line, and I remember, I think it was Nate, came and asked for some money to get some food, and when I handed him money, I said, make sure you get your brother something also. Now, I says, Father, how do you think I would feel if he didn't take care of his brother. And how much more do you think God thinks toward those of us that claim his name but are only interested in pursuing our own kingdom and our own stuff and forget about people that God loves that don't know him yet? See, in every opportunity, there's more than just the opportunity. If we don't see the spiritual, we don't see the full opportunity. In every circumstance, there is a spiritual dimension. There's something bigger, larger than what we see in the moment. There's something that's going to have more of a lasting impact than what we see in the moment. We see the opportunity, and we often filter it through what's best for me. 
how it's going to make me feel, how it's going to make me look, what it's going to do to my life, how it's going to impact my family. We, we look at all of that in this realm, often failing to see a bigger picture. Esther responds in verse 11, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal province know there is no doubt. This is absolutely certain. It's happened every single time that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them that spares their lives. Notice the next phrase. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Mordecai, you don't understand what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to go into the king, and in fact, when I do that, I'm going to be risking my life. And what you may not know, because we don't make it everybody's business, is that the king and I haven't even spoken in 30 days. We're not on speaking terms. Between chapter 2, when they get married, and chapter 3 and 4, five years pass by. And somehow in five years, he's gotten over the fact that she's the most beautiful woman. Maybe she's had a few wrinkles. Maybe things aren't going so well. Maybe they've had some arguments where he didn't like what she had to say. But for 30 days, they're not talking. Now, I know if you're married, you've never been in a season where you weren't talking. But for them, for them, this happened. We're not on speaking terms. Things are not going well. He's not even invited me to his bedchamber. We're kind of on the outs right now. And again, all she sees is what she can see and not the bigger perspective of what God is asking. See, fear and small thinking can cause us to easily misdiagnose kingdom opportunities. Fear and small thinking. What would your life life look like if you were not afraid and you thought big, bold thoughts? How would it change your family atmosphere? Moms and dads, as, if you, as you lead your kids, you, you walked into scenarios unafraid because of who your God is, relying on him. Even in the face of fear, you, you left fear behind. You leaned into your faith, and you thought in big and bold terms. Some of you are playing it way too safe. And you're living far too small a life compared to what you were created for. Think about what God has already done for you. Think about just where you were born. And when you look around and you think about all the things that you don't have. I, I, have, not, I have not gotten that new iPhone with the two or three cameras. I've not gotten that yet. But before you think about what you don't have, why don't we learn to value and appreciate and be grateful for what we do have? You could have been born anywhere. I've been to certain places in Africa. I've been to Moldova after communism fell. I've been to India, the southern part and the northeastern part. I've seen you could have been born anywhere. It it is a blessing and, and the grace of God that you and I were born in a country where we're free to even meet like this in a public school on a Sunday morning. Where we have the ability to communicate with people. Where we have the ability to build relationships. The things that your children and my children can take advantage of in this nation at this time that other kids in other nations don't even know about. See, before we we look at what God's asking us to do and minimize it and dismiss it because it's uncomfortable, we need to realize that if it wasn't for the goodness of God, you wouldn't even have blank to begin with. And some of you 
In fact, I would argue all of us have a whole lot of blanks, not just one. And how would your life change and how would my life change and how much more would we more easily lean into our faith and abandon our fear and and stop our small thinking and begin to think even bigger if we begin to think about and recognize all the things that God has done in our lives. We forget two things that cause us to live lives of less significance. How we got here and that we're here for others. I, I am under no grand illusion. I I understand that I do not deserve to be the pastor of such an amazing church. Every single Sunday before I walk out on this platform, I spend some time praying. And as I'm praying, one of the things I tell God every single week is I know that I'm not worthy. You are not blessed because I'm here. I can't do a thing to change your life or your future. The only thing we can do is look to God. Our blessing is that he's here. But I, I, I am under no grand illusion that you need me. You don't need me. I am fully aware that God could remove me tomorrow and bring somebody much better that even has hair. And you would be better off. God is not sitting back in heaven this morning thinking, man, I can't wait till the Cowboys beat the Giants tomorrow night. But also... I had to throw that in there. But also, I'm so glad that Byron is pastor of C3. I don't know what we'd do if he wasn't there. God is not thinking that. And if that's how I think about me, how do you think I think about you? Because there have been people over the years that thought it was essential for them to be a part of C3 and for them to make the ultimate decisions about C3. (laughs) On occasion, I have invited people to leave. No, I do it in a kind way, but I've just come to understand I cannot meet everybody's expectations, so I'm only going to try to meet one, and that's God's. And I I, I will not allow, I take very seriously my responsibility. See, there are a few things that God has entrusted me with, and one of them is protecting the house, and I take that very, very seriously. So if somebody comes in and wants to start lying and stirring up deception and just acting like an ass, they get invited to leave. Biblical word, it's in there, check it out, biblical word. Because the future of this church does not rise and fall on me, nor does it rise and fall on you. God is a big God. And so I think it's important for us to remember, if it were not for the grace of God, we would not be in the position we're in. I am in the role I'm in. I get I am privileged to do life with you. It is an opportunity that God has blessed me with only because of his grace, not because of me. I understand that. I am what I am only by the grace of God. So how would that perspective affect our day-to-day decisions? Well, if I am what I am only by the grace of God, if ultimately there is one God and it is not me and it is not you, if God is God and I am not, but he's so good to me and he's been so gracious to me, when when I approach life with that perspective, I, I lean into thinking bolder and bigger because it's all about God. Fear tends to diminish, and faith raises up because it's all about God. See, at the end of the day, our value to the kingdom of God is our usefulness. Not how precious you are. You're you're precious to God. If you have any doubt, please don't doubt. He gave his son. His son died for you. You're precious to God. The question is not one of how precious are you. The question is one of how valuable are you to God. 
Because did you know in the New Testament that God says some of his people are of no value? If you go to the beach, you know what you find at the beach? You find sand everywhere. There's sand all over the beach. You can pick it up by the fistfuls. Yet, if you want to do some work on some wood at home, you're going to go buy sandpaper, and it's sand with glue on paper, but you're going to pay for it now. The sand laying on the beach is the same sand that's on the paper. The difference is their value is based on how useful they are. The sand on the beach is of no use. You will find cracks and crevices you didn't know you had. But the sand on the paper is of use. It is becoming useful. In fact, if you go all the way to Silicon Valley, you'll discover that computer chips are made in part by sand. And that sand is immensely valuable, not because it's sand, but because of how it's being used, its usefulness. So you can be something that just lays around and soaks up the sun. You can be something that's used by God to make other people's lives smoother, or you can be used by God to make other people's lives more integrated and more intelligent and more connected. You get to decide how valuable you are. Every now and then, Angie and I will go to the mall, and if we go to the mall, I go to the Millennium Mall. I don't go to the Florida Mall, because if I go to the Florida Mall, I'm going to go to prison if one more person standing at a kiosk interrupts my conversation with my wife while I'm walking down the mall. Do not interrupt me if I'm talking to my wife. I don't, do you really think I need your hair product? I've never had any use for a straightener. Not then, not now. And so I can't go to the Florida Mall because I will kill someone. I have to go to the Millennium Mall. It just, it, it gets under my skin. And Angie tries to help me. And she's like, look, you don't understand, man. It's a job. I mean, thankful they, be thankful they've got a job and they're trying and they're made to do that. And I don't care. So I just go to the Millennium Mall. And when I go to the Millennium Mall, have you ever noticed when you're walking through the mall, the stores all have windows. And what's behind the windows? Dummies. We call them mannequins, but they're dummies. And depending on how nice the store is, that determines how dressed up the dummy is. I mean, if you've gone by some stores in some cities and in high-end malls, you will see dummies with tuxedos on, dummies with gowns on, dummies with Rolex watches on. But at the end of the day, they're still a dummy. And why is the dummy dressed up like that? The dummy is being shown off, not because the owner wanted to elevate the dummy. The dummy is being shown off because the owner wanted to invite people to come in and see what other good things are in that space. Any single time that God blesses you and God blesses me, it is not so that he can show us off. Our lives are too small for that. God is going to bless you. He's going to bless me when we can show the goodness and the grace of God off, the fact that he did something like that in my life, and invite others to come in and see how good God is. Because at the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of dummies (laughs) saved by the grace of God. So... The dummy isn't put on display to show off the dummy. The dummy is put on display to show off a greater kingdom. So why would God put you on display if all you're going to do is show you off? And the stuff that you beg God for and the stuff that you want and the promise, God, if you do do this, I'm going to start tithing. God, if you'll just do this, I'll start tithing. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's easier to give $7,000 a year or $70,000 a year? If you won't give seven, if you're making 70 a year, 
why would God believe you're going to give 70,000 if he gives you whatever that times 10 is? See, God is an if-then God, but the equation works one way. God says, you go for if you, then I'll. So Mordecai sends back an answer to Esther. He sent back his answer, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Do not overestimate your value in this equation. What he's saying is God would like to use you. It's God's direct plan to use you. God would prefer to use you. God gave you the looks he gave you before you were born in creation. God God set everything up. He would prefer to use you, but if you refuse, he's got other options. If I need to go downtown, I would prefer to take the 408 as the most direct route. But if the 408 is clogged up, if I get on that little Waze app and it tells me that the popo's all over the road, there's a wreck. Listen, I, I can go down Lake Underhill and weave through and it'll take a little longer, but I can get downtown without taking the 408. Or I can go down Curry Ford and, and pop on the 417 and shoot down 50 or University. There are multiple ways that I can get downtown. I would prefer to go on the 408 because you can go faster and you can get there perhaps quicker. But if that is simply not an option, there are other routes that I can take. God has strategically placed you in the relationships you're in, in the place that you live, in the job that you're in, even if you hate it. He's placed you exactly where you are to use you, to be an impact, to increase the significance in your life. But if you refuse, please make no mistake, he can use somebody else. God will not be limited by your no or mine. He can pick somebody else. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another. Could God say that to you this morning? If you keep remaining silent with the people that you work with, if you keep remaining silent with your friends, Before earth began, I put you in that spot, in those relationships, so that people could find hope in a relationship with Jesus. And I set it up for it to be through you. I allowed you to be a part of my plan and my story. I allowed you to play a role in helping people find a relationship with me. But but you just won't open. You'll open your mouth. You talk about a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. But if you remain silent when it comes to me, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another. I I want to use you. I'd like to use you. I'd prefer to use you. I'd prefer to bless you. But if you just refuse, I'll use somebody else. But you and your father's family will perish. Don't think you're going to just escape the situation. Anything less than full obedience is a lack of obedience. And who knows but that you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. So the focus is on what can happen to me if I go in and talk to the king. The focus is on I might die. The focus is on, man, look at all that I have. And yeah, my husband and I aren't talking right now, but I still live in a palace. The focus is on all of that, or the focus is on God and who he is and the ultimate purpose he has for my life. Everything about where you are and who you are is a strategic purpose designed by God. Now, to me, that should give you hope. It gives me hope. Everything about who you are and where you are is a strategic purpose designed by God. And nobody can replace the authenticity of who you are. God can use somebody else, but he didn't create another you. So maybe you need to stop looking at this, trying to be other people, and be who God created you to be authentically where you are. 
Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Biblical fasting, no food, just water for a certain period of time. And in the time that you would have been eating your meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner, or those of you that buy into, you need to eat 12 meals a day to be healthy, whatever you do, replace those eating times with spending time with God, with praying to God, with seeking God. So that, that's what fasting is. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's interesting to me, Esther, who was like, wait, what are you asking me? I'm not going to do that. Then comes to the place of, no, first, before I go talk to the king, we all need to talk to the king. Before I walk in that little throne room, I need to approach the big throne room. Sometimes in life, you and I need to stop talking to people and start talking to God about the people before we talk to the people. Sometimes we would get much further in our marriages if we'd stop, I almost said a word I shouldn't say, if we'd stop complaining about our spouses to other people and start talking to Jesus. Because you know what I've discovered? When I talk to God about Angie, and she only has over, over, over 30 years, there have only been one or two um, issues she's had. She, she doesn't have many. But what I've discovered is when I, start, when I start talking to God about her, you know what he does? He shows me that I'm usually the problem. So all the talking to her in the world isn't going to help. Sometimes we forget, hey, 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 your biggest problem is who you see in the mirror. You're the one interrupting what God wants to do in your life. You're the one giving in to fear. You're the one chasing success instead of significance. You're the one saying no to the things that God has clearly asked you to do and laid out in Scripture. You're the one interrupting the blessing of God in your life. Your biggest enemy is you. But when you spend time talking to the king first, he gets all that straight in our minds. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The greatest risk is not doing what God asks us to do. The greatest risk is failing to do what God is asking us to do. How useful is a refrigerator that won't cool down food? How useful is a toaster that won't pop up bread? How useful is an athlete that refuses to play? How useful is a car that won't drive? It doesn't matter what you call yourself. The question is, are you useful to the kingdom of God or not? Are you fulfilling the purpose for which you were created for a specific time? You and I were born in this time, not another time. We live in this city, not another city. We've been placed strategically in these relationships, not other relationships. Stop looking for what you wish you had and start appreciating what God has given you and pursue the calling he has on your life. See, faith is taking a step. Esther took a step of faith. Faith is taking a step when we cannot see the outcome. And the greater the uncertainty, the greater the purpose. Some of you just need to write that down. The greater the certainty, the greater the purpose. The uncertainty, the greater the purpose. So here's the what if. That's the series. What if? What if obedience is the key to experiencing life? Do you know people that are breathing and moving, and going through their day-to-day, but not really living. I believe there are far too many people that settle for existing rather than living. What if obedience is the key to experiencing life? And where, it is, in your, where is it in your life that, like Esther's first response, 
you've kind of been posturing as, no, 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 I can't, I can't do that. You don't understand what I'd have to give up if I did that. You don't understand what, what, what I wouldn't be able to enjoy if I did that. What if obedience is the key to experiencing life? And one of the things God has asked us to do is make an impact in this world. If you're a follower of Christ, the only reason you've not already gone to heaven is to help other people meet Jesus. So how valuable are you in that? Is there anybody that you can point to and say, hey, man, I know I'm not perfect, but, but because I love Jesus and because of his influence in my life, I've helped so-and-so come to know Christ. In 1912, the Titanic sank. It was supposed to be unsinkable, and 1,500 people died. But 1,500 people did not have to die because did you know that the lifeboats were not full? But the people that were already saved and safe refused, refused to go back because of what might happen. They were content with their own safety and their own salvation, knowing that others were going to perish. And I don't think there's a better picture of the church today. We have no problem being content because we feel safe. We come in a room, and if all you do is come and you sit and you soak and you do nothing, you are not useful to the kingdom of God. I just love you enough to tell you, you, you can be mad at me. That's fine. You know what you can't do? You can't stop me from loving you. Because you, you need to come to the point in your life where you evaluate, what difference am I making for the kingdom of God? What if obedience is the key to experiencing life? So you get to choose. Life or a mere existence? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, I pray for every person in this room in this moment. I pray as we roll through this week, the things you ask us to do, we would be obedient to you. We would begin to chase significance over success, and we would understand that we are strategically placed in relationships because of you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning and you know that the greatest need of your life is to commit your life to Christ. If, if that's you, I want to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it in the quietness of your heart or you can pray it out loud. But if you'd like to commit your life to Christ today, begin this new, personal, intimate, daily relationship with the living God, just pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Please forgive me for my sin. And help me to live for you. God, please use me to bring others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.